James Quaife is a top UK producer, owner of James Quaife Productions formed in 2009 and co-founder of New Frame Productions founded in 2020. James has produced work both in the West End and around the UK. He is passionate about nurturing and developing new and innovative work for the stage, as well as producing the highest quality of theatre and live entertainment possible. So today on In The Room, we are doing another episode of The Essentials, and this time on producers, a role in this industry that is so vitally important, but we think very little people actually learn much about until you encounter a producer. And today, a lovely producer has decided to talk and encounter us. So hello, James. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, not bad, not bad. How are you doing, Lee? You all right? I am very well, thank you. Brilliant. So, um, yeah, let, let's crack straight on in it. I sort of um, said it there that a lot of people don't really know what producers do or who producers are. So I'd love to quickly start this off, James, by asking you, what is a producer? Well, I think I think a lot of people think a producer is someone with the money that um, sits in a big office and makes lots of decisions and their name is above the title and that is it. Um, I think there's a lot more to it and it's changed over the years and there's different types of producing for different sort of types of theatre and platform. And as we've gone through the the last year, that's changed to more digital producing and online producing. But essentially, the job for me as a producer and for the producers that that I trust and know are people that come up with the ideas of what shows that they want to put on. They're reading scripts, they're talking to writers and directors, and they're coming up with very much creative ideas of what they want to put on the stage. And sometimes that's led with a business head. Sometimes that's about um, making money because theatre is a business at the end of the day. And to pay everyone involved, we have to have that money at the box office. But for me, it's from a creative point of view of who the people that I want to work with, the shows that I want to do, the creative teams that I want to work with and the stories that I want to tell to the public. And then on the other side, there's a lot of spreadsheets. There's a lot of budgeting. There's a lot of difficult conversations that you have with people as well as creative. There's decisions on artwork. There's uh, choices on who's going to be in the show, who's going to direct it, how much you're going to charge for a ticket, what merchandise you're going to sell, how long does it run for. And then there's more difficult decisions of when do you close the show? When do you tell your company that you're closing early or that you're extending or that you're going to the West End, which I've had the pleasure of giving that news to a show. So it's a lot of stuff, but it's, it's both creative and both business. Yeah, it's, it's that blend that a lot of the um, a lot of the roles in the industry have that gra- that blend between the creative side and and the business side. That's really interesting. And the list of things you 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 read off there, like that's enough to keep me going for about four or five years. But the fact you have to do that for every <laughs> show is incredible. And then you know shows that are on, as you say, and tell people that they're extending or closing or transferring while probably producing another show at the same time. Mm. Uh, well, to do all those tasks, it, you know, that, that's in, seriously impressive. So what makes a good producer? I think um, I think you have to, well, I think very recently, as we've all seen in the press, it's coming to light that um, really to, to succeed, you have to be a nice producer, you have to be a nice person. And um, that's certainly coming up in the press now where finally people are sort of calling out producers that may have led with a slight iron fist or have been bullies and that's changing so I think you need to be a nice person and you need to be caring and you need to be passionate a lot of this job is uh, you find yourself um, in a way counseling people whether that's actors or creatives or 
people with ideas. Um, you have to look after a lot of people. There's a big family that you pull together that work on on the shows. So you have to be kind. And then you have to be creative. I don't. I personally believe it can't be split. I think a true producer is both creative and both business-minded. I've met producers that are very good creatively but do not understand how budgets work or how the logistics of producing works. And I don't see that, you know, being a sustainable career and then I've seen the other side which is more of you know producers that are great with the logistics but not at the creative side so I think a true producer a true theatre maker has to be able to do to do both of those things. Mm -hmm. I'm really intrigued how you actually become a producer is it something that you've always done or did you work in other aspects of the industry first? Well well, I trained as a director years ago, and I thought that's what I wanted to do. And I did a lot of directing when I, well, I very bizarre, when I was very, very young, like eight or nine, I turned my garden shed into a theatre. So um, I put on plays much to the annoyance of next door neighbours and family and friends. Like I think a lot of people in our industry do. That's our first stage is the living room or the large pair of curtains oh, yeah. that hang in the dining room. The back garden um, productions of Titus Andronicus. Oh my gosh. I used to use old bed frames as stages and just wreck the garden with shows, which I thought were extraordinary. I think I tried to restage Cats, the musical in my bedroom <laughs> once, and um, my parents just sat there and and watched it. Um, but I think um, I started very much as a, a love of theatre, seeing it as a young child. No one in my uh, family grew up in the theatre industry, so I'm sort of the black sheep of the family. But um, I thought I wanted to be a director, so I trained as a director. I bought every book on directing, and I did an MA in directing and was politely told at the end by my course leaders that I wasn't a very good director. But I was very good at the kind of admin side of stuff and the spreadsheets and the putting on the show. So um, I got introduced to a producer called David Pugh, very successful producer, and um, he sort of took me under his wing for a short period of time. And I then just started producing. And I think I walked over to the Finborough Theatre and I told Neil McPherson, who runs the theatre, I want to be a producer. And he said, OK, we'll produce this show. And I just, just started. And it was very much a hands-on, learn, on the go. Mm. How does, say, if a student's uh, just leaving college and they decide they want to be a producer, how, how would, what advice would you give them to actually getting into it? Is there a specific producer course you can go on to go straight into it rather than being a director first or? Yeah, I, look, I've heard that there, I've got to be careful, I've heard there are producer courses out there. I've never done a producer course and I'm not too sure what they entail. Um, I don't know necessarily if they're really necessary but I don't I've never been on one but there's an amazing um, uh, charity called Stage One which support new commercial producers and they have supported me greatly through my career of becoming an apprentice uh, with James Seabright and then getting an bursary to put on a play called Step 9 or 12 and through that led to becoming a lead producer on Barking in Essex so I've gone through that that kind of route but I think if you're a student coming straight out of uh, a course and you're, you're wanting to be a producer it is about hands-on it's about writing to um, I think it's about writing to up-and-coming producers like you, you if you write to someone like Cameron or Sonia you're probably not going to get 
a response. But if you write to those producers that are doing work on off West Ends, on the fringe and dabbing into the West End, they're the people that may let you come in and, and sit and observe. But it is a hands-on job. It's about going, I want to produce this show and I'm going to find the money and I'm going to make it happen and I'm going to put it on. That is the best way that you're going to learn how to do this job. Yeah, I think as, as you say there, it's the sort of, you bought all the books on directing there isn't really books on a lot of the roles in this industry and that getting hands-on is 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 the way forward and i mean it must be immensely hard to get people to to trust you with that with that kind of work especially early on to trust you with um producing work do you think it's just a case of you know roll the dice with me watch me prove i can do this and or or build up the credits early on what how how do you go about getting people to trust you with whole shows I think I think it's about earning well for me it was all about earning my stripes and it was about proving that um, I'm good at this job and I'm dedicated to this job so I never rush straight in going I'm going to produce a show on the West End and I've seen that happen and I've, I've seen that not be successful for people I started you know doing shows at the end of a fringe at the Fimbra which is a 50 seat theatre the Pleasance in Islington which is a, I think a 35 seat or 40 seat theatre um, and I suppose my passion for for new work and new writing came from that because I was never going to be given the rights to like a Noel Coward play or an Alan Aitborn play. Why would I? So I had to do new work or new writing. Um, and you just kind of work it out as you go. There, there are lots of producers now more and more and they're willing to talk. And I think particularly through the year we've gone down with lockdown, there's been that opportunity to reach out through social media and go, can I have a chat? Can I ask you this opinion? And I do that a lot and I mentor producers through stage one as well. But I think it is about you're physically having to put something on. It's unlike a writer who can write a play and if you get it in front of the right person, they can read it and they go, oh, that's good or that's bad. With a producer, you have to physically put something on. And through that, you earn contacts and you earn trusted people and your shows build up and build up and you you go from your 50-seater to your 100, your 100 to 400 to the West End and, and beyond. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to ask you about um, your decision to set up your own production company. You set up James Quaife Productions in 2009 and you most recently set up New Frame Productions in 2020 with another producer. So why did you um, decide to set up your own production companies and what did you bring from the work that you'd already done at places like the um, the Fimbra or, or the Fringe or the Pleasance or the English Touring Theatre that you worked with as well? I think really I just wanted my own business card and a website that sounded like <laughs> there were lots of people working for all? me. I know, like the amount of time when you're writing, you know, your company information, you put we and it's just you. And I, I think I used to set up fake email addresses and like have someone called Sally that used to work for me. And That's none of these amazing. people existed, <laughs> but it got a bit complicated after a while. But um, I think I think I just did it to get my name out there. And uh, I think a lot of people do use their own name as a production company. And that helps get your name out there. And, you know, you're a brand yourself. So the shows that you choose to put on become your branding. So I think people that come and see, you know, a James Quay show or a new frame production show know what they're going to get and they know they're going to get the quality um, from what they're paying for. But um, I don't, I don't, there wasn't a conscious decision to why I set up the company. It was just, I'm going to be a producer so the way I can brand myself as a producer is to have this company and to have that name above the title. And um, 
I had it before I joined English Touring Theatre and then I was with ETT for about five years, Twenty started 2014 and um, learned a huge amount there about how to tour shows, how to work with different actors and different directors. And, you know, I think I did about 12 or 15 shows while I was there. Like it was a huge, huge learning experience. Um, and so I take all of that on to, you know, the new company that I set up. And every time I do a show or work with a new group of people, you're learning something, something different about the show and also yourself as a producer. Yeah. And, and, and on your website, which you, which you said you really wanted with your, with your business card and, and lovely Sally, it says on your <laughs> website that you're passionate about nurturing new and innovative work for the stage. Why does that new work excite you? And what would you define as innovative? Because clearly that's where you, you started off with new writing work. As you say, that's what you had to start with because you wouldn't be able to get an Acorn. But what, what gave you that, that love for new writing? I think it's because you're telling a story for the very first time that people haven't heard or haven't seen. And often it's, it will have similar themes to another story or similar objectives. But for me, it was about um, working with writers. Um, I, lo- I just love working with creative people. I think creativity is one of the greatest skills you can have as a human, whether that's creative in your cooking or creative in your art. But with writing, I think it's astonishing that... Um, writers can come up with these scenarios and these stories and when you see the drama unfold on the stage it's it's absolutely captivating so I was always drawn to new stories and I think we often watch new stuff we're much more used to watching new stuff on telly whether it's an ITV drama or a new Netflix film or or a new not documentary we are used to seeing something new it's very rare you go back and Rewatch stuff or something's revived cinematically although it has done and it's often disastrous i think the wicker man the original is an amazing film the remake of it is one of the worst films ever created <laughs> but um so i've never been drawn to to revivals i think there are some great companies out there that do it and but i think we have um a job to to tell new stories and to bring new voices and new teams to the stage and I think if you're constantly reviving old musicals or old plays for me that that become can become stale unless you're reinventing it so something like Equus um, that Ned Bennett directed for me when I was at ETT it was the first time that the estate allowed that play to be done without the stage directions in the play and without the John Napier design. So we didn't have horse heads. We didn't do the traditional blocking. And for me, that's incredibly exciting because it reinvented that play. It brought it to a new audience and it expressed it completely differently to what it had been done before. So I'm not opposed to revivals, but they would have to be like there would have to be a really good reason to do it and a really good take and an ingenious director behind that. I remember yeah. when we did um, A Streetcar Named Desire, like I'm a huge Tennessee Williams fan. That's probably the only place I would say, okay, let's do a good revival of that. But Chelsea Walker, who's an, again, an astonishing director who um, directed Streetcar, again, completely reinvented that and completely restaged you know the very difficult scene towards the end of that play and it opened it up to a completely different audience talking about the the kind of things that you like to put on how do you go about selecting the work that you want to produce i mean i'm sure you get sent hundreds and hundreds of plays um i wish i did get sent out i shouldn't actually say that i get sent a few plays here and there and 
it's sort of odd. I think at the beginning of your career, you're very open to reading anything and you sort of invite that. And then as you get busier, it gets a little bit harder. And if you don't have uh, someone in your team that is always reading scripts, it's quite hard. But um, I don't know. I'm often inspired by, I watch a lot of um, TV, listen to a lot of podcasts. And if there's a new book coming out, I'm first to try and see whether the stage rights are available. But I am, I'm often drawn to stories about human life, about um, difficulties and struggle. So Sweat, that I was a producer on at the Gilgood of, of last year, I think. That was an before. incredible play. Oh, did you see it? I did see that one. That was a remarkable show. It's They're, they're the exact type of plays that I'm drawn to. And, and Good People with Amelda Staunton that I did a couple of years ago is very similar. It's what I love about a play or a moment in theatre is when you've got the whole audience together and something happens and the whole audience reacts. They either gasp or they jump. And I'm often drawn to those plays that will have a big twist at the end or something that is completely unexpected. And you sort of pull the rug from from underneath them. So, but then I say that I'm, you know, in the middle of bringing Alyssa Edwards over from America, who's a drag queen from RuPaul's Drag Race, and we're staging her show. So I've gone from Tennessee Williams and, you know, Peter <laughs> Schaffer to Alyssa Edwards. But for me, it's, it's all the same. It's still telling stories about um, a human life or a struggle or something. Um, but I'm, I'm falling more into the entertaining stuff as well. There's a few things that are sort of more more entertaining. Well, that idea of that working class struggle is, is you know, sweat is literally a play, although in a different country that sums it up completely. And I, I remember it when it it had a huge, it was the talk of the town for, for weeks and weeks because it wasn't the longest run in the West End and everyone wanted to get a ticket when it was there. Mm. It, it did transfer, didn't it? This is this is all from memory. It, when... Yes, yeah, it opened at the Donmar and I saw it at it. the Donmar and fell in love with it. And then I think that night was immediately saying, I want to be a part of this transfer. And it just so happened that the office that I was at at English Touring Theatre at the time, it was just before I left, down the corridor, Mark Rubenstein was leading that production. And so I just went into his office and said, I have to be a part of this show. There is no way I'm not being a part of it because I think Lynette Linton is an incredibly director. She's now at the Bush and mm. Lynn Nottage who wrote it. And just the story and the casting, it was a play that that had to transfer and had to go into the West End. Yeah, and I like the way as well. It didn't have, you know, a stardom name in the cast. It was very much an ensemble play. And when you get a play, mm. like names are important, hugely important. And I think a lot of the time names get a bad rep when actually they're the ones that keep a lot of shows open because they bring people in. But um it's great sometimes to see a play about something that you'd never, ever think you'd watch with a cast of people that aren't big celebrities that are all pulling in the same direction. It was, it was such a great show. We could do a podcast on that itself. I'm, I'm, fanboying. <laughs> I'm, I'm fanboying a bit. I'll let, I'll let, I'll let Smith ask the next question. We'll, we'll, we'll move on there. You, Lee, you can Smith. jump in. <laughs> Bring my nickname out. Um, sorry, sorry. I was just going to ask, what does your typical day look like a nine to five day as a producer in a, obviously a non pandemic world? But it, it sort of it hasn't changed hugely, really. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the lockdown, I had a, a job to kind of change all the shows that we had planned to be live and move them either online or we created a mockumentary on YouTube with one of them. We completely changed our our output, but um, it's sort of settled back down. But 
really my day starts about seven o'clock and you sort of get up I do the whole scrolling through Twitter and Instagram and both make me feel wonderful and at the same time want to jump off a bridge Um, (laughs) (laughs) but you do that and you, you sort of see read a few articles about what's going on and then go through I have to often start my day going through the emails that have come through from America in the morning and deal with them and then working with my producing partner Robin Rayner that's we then are on the phone for a couple of hours because although we set up New Frame Productions sort of in 2020 and we have been in the same room a couple of times we're yet to work full-time together in the same space and whether that will happen or whether that will be different we don't know but a lot of it is um, answering emails phone calls focusing on on the show that we have with Alyssa and what's coming up next later in the year and then often you'll have something that will come through that will you that wasn't expected and you spend several hours dealing with that and then America wakes up around about three o'clock and then you're dealing with them till about eight or nine o'clock at night and then you try to switch off before you go to sleep so you can try and have a relaxing night if possible yeah it's a long days <laughs> I'd, I'd love to ask you about um how you want the role of a producer to change and adapt in in, in the coming years what changes would you maybe you know think are going to happen uh, how would you want it to change you sort of mentioned earlier on about how it's becoming more and more important for people in positions of power like producers to be a nice person that behavior that is unacceptable is now becoming unacceptable are there any other changes you'd like or would you like to expand on that point I think I think we definitely need new voices to come in from you know different walks of life and different backgrounds and you know there is um it's it's very tricky you know if you're commercially producing in the west end the one thing is that you need is to be able to find money and um there are a lot of producers out there that are very lucky to come from money and are able to raise their investment very quickly And there are producers that are coming up that don't come from money, like myself, that have to really think differently about how you raise investment and what shows that you want to put on. And I think that's changing. I think um, you look at, you know, we're working with NYMAX um, and Nika and Lawrence there, and they're supporting 23 new producers by giving them their theatres, you know, albeit for, for a financial deal, but to stage shows as soon as the 17th happens as soon as uh, we're allowed out um and that's really exciting and it's interesting that the producers that have come to the front are not your big big west end producers some of them have stepped back for whatever reason but the people that are paving the way that are risking probably their own finances and really pushing are new producers and they're the one that are getting work on and that will bring audiences back and make audiences feel safe again to return to theatre and therefore go and see those other bigger shows that perhaps those big producers are taking a step back from. So I think it's always about bringing new people in, finding how they can get that step on the ladder and how they can produce and how you can collaborate with people as well. And I think collaboration is a big thing. Gone are the days of just that one name above the title. There are more and more producers that appear, both for financial risk reasons, but also it's better to have different voices in that room about how you can sell a show or how you can promote it or who you can put in it. Because it's it's you're selling your show to lots of different people out there, not just one consumer. Mm. As you were talking about uh, investment there, 
how do you go about attracting investors to a production? And do you have any tips for creatives in the industry on attracting commercial or private interest or just funding in general? I know there's like funding websites and things like that, or is it angel investors and things? I think like it's, it's the golden question that, you know, you always get asked is who are your investors or where do you find them? And mm. um, I don't have a huge list of investors at all. And I know there are, you know, other producers that have far bigger lists and, but um it's really just, there isn't a place where you can find them. But the way I started when I when I, you know Barking Essex was my first show and I had to raise um, hundred thousand pounds for that, half of which was supported through Stage One, which I had to match fund. So I just wrote to anyone or anybody that I thought had money, and through um, either a family contact or a friend contact. I would look at supporters of other theatres because there are theatres out there that will have lists of supporters. So I would cold call, cold write to anyone. Um, but at the end of the day, I was presenting a business opportunity. I had a show with Lee Evans and Sheila Hancock and Keely Hawes. It was on paper a investable opportunity. Um, so you sort of just have to think of different ways of doing that. I know people use LinkedIn, social media, and once you get that first investment check or that first person saying, yes, I'll invest in your show, it's an amazing feeling. And it just makes you want to go and find more money. And um, it's not you know, a taboo subject, money. A lot of people find it awkward to talk about it. But half my job is once you've chosen the show you want to do and you've done your budget, you're going, OK, well, how are we going to raise 600,000 or how are we going to raise a million? And it's a lot of money, but once you sort of break it down, it becomes easier. And when you're producing, you know, at the end of a fringe, you start off with a show costing five or 10,000 and off West End, it goes up a bit, but so does your capacity and so does the kind of creative team that you're working with. But I think don't be shy about asking for money. Don't feel awkward if you've got an investable opportunity. There are people out there and talk to other producers. Don't feel you have to produce it on your own you could find four other producers and each divide up how much you need to raise and um kind of share that risk with that show yeah yeah the key thing that you kept saying there uh from my point of view was the the fact that you have an opportunity an opportunity to present to them it's not like you're begging for money for sort of nothing that is an investable opportunity Exactly. And you, you know, you might be at the beginning of your career. And I know I've done that. And you're, you've done your investment pack for a 50 seat theatre with nobody in it that nobody knows, and you're still going, but it will make money, it'll be fine. And that person probably knows it's it's not going to make money. But they probably see something in you as a producer. And they Mm -hmm. you you have to have that charm and charisma and uh, banter with the people that you're asking to give their, their money to because what they're counting on is that from your show at the Fimbra, at some point you're going to be producing the next um, Mamma Mia or the next Wicked or the next Hamilton. That's what they're hoping they're doing. So they're buying into you as much as your first show. Yeah, I mean, I'd, it's that confidence, isn't it, to say, you know, I've I've got something you want here that I think a lot of early career artists, especially actors, there is that fear of, you know, we we are number twos a lot of the time of, oh, please give me a job. Oh, oh please look at my show reel. When actually sometimes that confidence, that idea of, no, 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 I am the person for your job. I can do this, 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 and this. And, um, you know, you're dealing with huge sums of money as producers, but you go in with that kind of confidence. So sometimes it surprises me when actors don't do that. Do you think that's something more 
you know, other people in the creative industry should take from from producers that are really, you know, strutting their stuff? I think I think you have to be confident in this industry. It's, it's a hard industry to survive and to navigate. So I think there has to be some confidence. And there's, a, you know, there's a big distinction between confidence and arrogance. And I think yeah. that can get mixed up both with producers and actors and everyone. And you see those overly confident people and that can be off-putting. But there's there's a balance to it and a charm to it. But I think, you know, with actors in particular, you know, you can be producers as well. You can, if there's something you want to do, rather than waiting for that agent to call, like, and you're desperate to do this show, then find a way to put that on, find an up-and-coming producer. And there's a lot of actors that are crossing over into the producing world. And they're the clever ones. They're the ones going, right, we're in the middle of a pandemic. I'm probably not going to get a job this year. So I'm going to find something I want to do and build a team around me to get that show on. And I don't think that's a place from arrogance. Um, You know, they're not saying I'm going to play Hamlet or something, but they're going, we have to survive. So let's put something on. So no one should be ashamed or put off, you know, by producing or putting on a show that you want to do. Absolutely. Speaking of actors, how involved are producers in the casting process for a production? And what is the audition process like for a producer? Well, I I suppose we could spit it into kind of two things. I think there's, for a producer, you've got the the actors that are, um, I was going to say desperate, it's sort of the wrong word, but are hoping to be (laughs) in your show. And, you know, you've got the power. And so they're, they're really wanting to be in it. And then on the other hand, it flips when you're trying to get that big star because you're begging them to be in your show and then they've got the power. So you sort of split it out. So I think when it comes to the casting of those star roles, you know, we have long lists of the big stars that we want to go for. And it's, you know, often an immediate offer. You know, you're not going to ask Judy Dench to pop down to the Jerwood to give a quick audition. You know, it's it's a direct <laughs> offer. I um, want to see that email. <laughs> <laughs> Dear Judy, I hear that you're quite good, but would you come down and uh, see us? Prove and it. She might do. Prove it. Um, but, you know, most of those people are a direct offer and it will come down to dates and the financial offer and if they want to play that role. And sometimes that star actor has already contacted that producer and said, I want to play this role at some point. Can you make this happen for me? So that often what happens, particularly on the really big shows. But in terms of um, not dealing with star cast members and dealing with just phenomenal actors across the board, from my point of view, I have I trust the director first and foremost and the casting director, particularly the casting director and why they are not uh, awarded, you know, Olivier's and Tony's and given the kind of acknowledgement they should get is, is beyond me. But it's sort of slowly changing. But casting directors are wonderful people because they often come up with the ideas of sometimes a star or they've seen an amazing up and coming actor. So often for me, you you have the play, you have the project and the director and the casting director will come up with lists and you'll see those lists. And at some point you might come into that audition and it's often the final round of auditions I'll go in. Um, I have done it from the very beginning and um, it sounds awful, but I just don't have the patience. Like I've seen directors who are amazing with actors and will pull stuff out of them, but I'm just you know no next or yes let's hire them and they're like no let's see someone else so I don't have the patience to do the full casting I often come in towards the end where there's the final 
options and we talk about all the pros and cons but um normally it's fairly obvious when the answer comes into that room that they are they are right for that role and that you want them yeah yeah i mean aside from being desperate what do you look for in actors auditioning for your shows is there any well, specific traits is it in terms of is it a, like a, a natural quality that's subtle or rather I've... rather not being desperate i think you might <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no, I only want actors that are begging to be in something for me. <laughs> the Judy Dench way. Exactly, yeah. I think um I I've always I've always leaned more towards the actors that aren't acting, the ones that are just so natural and you don't feel they're putting anything on. It's it's just them. And I think that's that's really wonderful. And um, you know, you'll just see that the text and come to life and often if an actor doesn't get the job it's not because they're not good at all it's because someone's brought something slightly different and I think that's where um, confusion can happen if you don't get the role you think I'm not good enough it's not it's because we've just seen someone that brought in something different or we could be looking for something totally different the makeup of the cast the overall feel of the production and who we're wanting to get into that room and the voices that we need but um, it has to, you know, I like actors that are friendly, that are warm, that don't really have an ego, that are able to work and, and collaborate and ultimately be a team player because it's, um, it's, it's an odd job that we all do. And we bring this group of people together that have never met. And on one day we all stand in a room and we tell each other our names and what we do. And we expect everyone to get on and create something amazing. And it doesn't always go that way. Um, and that's where it become tricky. But I think it's actors that are just just generally lovely, warm, and have a good reputation. Because we do check, we do will often once we get that final list before the offers go out, we will speak to other directors, other actors that are in that show if we need them, and we'll go, "What is that person really like?" And if that comes back with a bad report, or we're told, "Oh, they're quite deverish," or they're not, you know they're quite rude that will have an impact on whether that person gets the job yeah oh that's really interesting because because i was going to ask you are there any you sort of said that most of the time you, you just know when it's the right person but i was going to ask if there are any tangible do's and don'ts or tangible um pros and cons as you mentioned about why you'd hire or not hire a certain actor but that's a that's a fascinating one are, are there any others that come off the top of your head of like sometimes there must be discussions of well that we've cast someone who's the sister that looks like this and that person would look like the brother whereas that person wouldn't are details like that important i think only if it's like fundamental to the play only Mm. if it's like really crucial other than that you know and i've seen you know we've we've all seen the poster that comes out and we've all seen that it's a completely all white cast and that's completely unacceptable nowadays it just it can't happen and I know I've dealt with directors going well in Shakespearean time it would be this but you sort of go well also we wouldn't be arriving to the theatre in an uber and having a gin and tonic so are we going to sit on hay and get syphilis like how real are we going (laughs) with this show so I think that's always a really really poor excuse now thankfully it's changing but it's changing through new directors and new producers that are fighting it and fighting that kind of old school style of producing. 
I think that that fits in with what you said about revivals having to offer something new that, you know, a different production of this Shakespeare, a different production of this Tennessee Williams. You know, people don't want to see what's been done before. And that that, as you say, you know, diversity and inclusion is, is a great way to bring something new to audiences, especially British audiences, I think. Mm, absolutely. I think we have to keep reinventing because I, I think sometimes theatre could be seen a little bit to be stuck in the past and a little bit museum-like and you look at things like Netflix and Prime that are constantly reinventing how we watch entertainment and how we take in um, TV dramas or um, new stuff and in theatre it's only now that we're really starting to embrace that but that's certainly coming from a younger generation I haven't seen it come from an older generation yet. Do you know, actors and creatives get told a million things about contacting industry professionals. I know I've sent tons of emails out before, got the odd reply. <laughs> <laughs> Just the odd one. Um, is there any, Is a, what's the sort of best way to go about contacting you per se? Because I know some casting directors hate to be emailed and just blacklist you. I think, well, it's such a shame if they blacklist you. I think that's really, really terrible because it's, it's you know, people are trying to work out how to contact people and trying to get a job and survive and I think you know we don't want to keep going on about this past year but you know we will lose a lot of people to to this industry not through Covid and death but just because people are going I can't survive in this industry anymore I have to move on and that's really terrible so I think there is going to be people a slight desperation in, in a positive way of people trying to get a job But in terms of writing, um, I think the honest truth for me, if I get an actor sending me a CV and a headshot, there's not a lot I can do with that. And often I'll look at it and sometimes I'll reply, but in all honesty, nine times out of 10, I will just delete that email because particularly if it's just on like a random day in a random year where I'm not doing anything, if I get an email because I'm working on a show that's announced, and someone saying, I truly believe I'm right for this role. Please, can I be seen for it? And they talk to you a little bit about your company. It always helps if you say, look, I saw your last show and I thought it was, well, often it helps if you say, I thought it was phenomenal. If you thought it was crap, that's a bit different. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought it was good. And uh, I love the work that you do as a producer. And it's not that's not about me looking for someone to say how good I am it's about seeing a genuine connection and it's not a blanket email and so if you can sign and say I saw this I loved it I know you're producing this show I think I'd be great for this part please can you know I'd be seen for it what I will often do is forward it to the casting director and the director and go can we try and get this person in because that's more a personal approach but the the dear sir slash madam, which I've had in the past, oh, God. You know, if, <laughs> if you can't be bothered to get my name right, I can't be bothered to read your email. And um, it's always a blanket email. So I think you have to personalise it, which takes it a bit longer. But I, I truly do believe that just sending out random emails with CVs won't get you far. It's about getting that producer at that right time and doing your homework, like working out what they're working on, working out what might be announced. You know, we can all work out the shows that are being announced and that are opening, find out who's producing it, who's casting it and write to them and make that a a personal connection. Um, Or the other way, you know, COVID aside, try and bump into them at a theatre or, um, 
you know, at a party or something. That's, I, I would prefer trying to bump into you at a social situation than I will via email because then I can't really go anywhere and I can't really be rude. So I have to listen. <laughs> yeah. I've got you trapped. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> but with the gin and tonic, it's all good. It's, 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 you know, rather than the syphilis and the hay that we absolutely, um, absolutely. It's amazing that you know we we tweet out little bits of you know what little advice we offer on our, on our Twitter page, and every single week we tweet something about emailing and being specific with your emails. And every single podcast we've done with industry professionals, where we ask them about do's and don'ts with emails every single one has said yeah i've got emails that say dear team whatever or dear whom whoever it may concern Mm. dear sarah madam it's like oh god it doesn't take too much to find even to look at a website and look at your past productions and at least be specific in that way doesn't take much effort i I think sometimes what's quite interesting as well is sometimes it goes the other way because i've had moments where i have seen a director's show or a casting director's show. I've been to the show. I've got the ticket. And it's like, sometimes I think, are they going to believe me when I say I have been there? Yes. Like part of me wants to literally attach the ticket stub as a PDF. <laughs> Cause I worry that sometimes, you know, people will be like, Oh, have you been to the show? What happened in act three? That's so ridiculous. But do you know what I mean? Is, is that, is that a thing? Or am I just going on a deep sort of rant here that I definitely need therapy for? <laughs> no I I, th- I think you are right like there is a kind of worry that if you say I, I saw this show and whether the producer's like really did you see that show or did you just google the reviews and that may be the case but even saying you saw that show you've you've made the effort slightly because if you're not going to make the effort to first of all write my name or or, or make a connection with me then how am I going to trust that you're going to make the effort to learn your words and turn up to the rehearsals on time and do a good job if you if you're putting so much uh, if you're not putting any thought into just an email to try and get the job I, I'm not going to want to work with you because I don't trust you're going to deliver what we need to deliver so you're doing more harm by doing the you know let's blind CC every producer in and do dear sir slash madam and send out your attaching headshot and CV no one is going to look at that. Um, particularly and I've had in the past if you don't blind CC everyone in and you just CC everyone and everyone suddenly got their email address out there that's the worst it honestly it makes it it, it, it I'm often speechless with that kind of thing I mean I know people are just trying to trying to get work and things but that's just not putting your best foot forward and a lot of these actors or creatives will be gifted they'll have ability but it's just such a I don't get it. We'll, we'll, we'll move swiftly on in a second. I'd just like to, <laughs> to ask you one more question about emailing in the sense of, as you say, yeah. you write a lot of emails about getting stuff over the line, about finding money, getting in contact with directors or looking at um, stage rights for things. Any tips on writing emails as a producer or any tips just in general from your email writing that you could give to other people that isn't just, you know, please don't put sir and madam, look up someone's name. I think... Um... It's interesting. I suppose it sort of changed as my career has, you know, slowly grown and stuff. You know, the emails have shrunk to just like, hey, are these rights available? Yes or no? And the, the quick reaction, whereas before you might have to sell yourself a little bit more. And it's about, you know, that agent or the person that owes those rights trusting you. And when I, you know, one of the first shows I kind of produced on my own was Step 9 or 12 at Trafalgar Studios when it had the small studio. And I made a conscious effort as a producer to go meet every single agent and have a cup of tea in their office. And um, I think they were slightly off put by it and probably didn't want to do it. But 
I wanted them to meet me and have, uh, you know, 10 minutes with me and to us to chat. And it really worked very well because they became friends and colleagues and they trusted me and they trusted me with their clients. So I think as you grow and develop your your brand and you as a producer in the industry and you become known for good quality work and for working with good people and being nice, then you have those conversations quicker. But I think at the beginning of your career, you've got to understand there's probably no point you trying to get the the rights to a big show because it's probably with someone. Um, So it's about thinking outside the box and thinking of a different way of approaching. And that could be going to another producer who is... um, you know, got more credits behind them and going, I've had an idea to do this show, what do you think? Or finding a play that, you know, by playwright that hasn't been done, an old Tennessee Williams play that has never been done before, that's always a good thing. But um, I think my emails are sort of slightly quick and, and to the point, especially when it comes to rights. And I've chased rights for stuff for about five years. And you know, you, you keep checking, going, are they available? No, they're still with so-and-so. And finally, they become available. Um, so you, you must have perseverance. And it can be very disheartening when everyone comes back and says, no, not available, no, not available. So you just have to think of a different way to get get that show or or get that author or or just keep waiting and be persistent as well in a non-nagging way. Wow, that's such a long time for the rights. Five years. I know. <laughs> and you know that the person that's got them isn't going to put them on. And that's often what's even more frustrating, but they're, they're with someone else. But mm. if, if you, if you're passionate to do that show, then you'll keep, you'll keep fighting to try and get the rights to do it. And at some point they will fall in your lap. Yeah, sure. What, what are you working on at the moment, James? So I think, well, the, the main thing we've got, um, the lovely Alyssa Edwards from RuPaul's Drag Race, and she's coming over to do her one-woman show, Memoirs of the Queen, at the Vaudeville Theatre in June, I think from the 7th to 13th of June. So we're just working that out. And that's a whole, you know, different thing of a very short rehearsal period and rehearsing on Zoom and rehearsing in quarantine and very <laughs> short tech period and all of us not really knowing what this show is going to be, but, um, you know, we trust um, Justin who portrays Alyssa that it's going to be phenomenal. So it's a very different way of working. And that's a show, you know, that was meant to happen a year and a half ago. And um, we stopped it because of COVID. And now we have an opportunity to put it back on again. So we're working on that. I think we're going to announce another show in a couple of weeks. And then there's, there's, there is a pile of other stuff, but it's, what we're doing is working out what the audiences are like now and how they have changed through this pandemic and um, who are the first audiences that are going to return. And I think it's going to be that slightly younger audience that are more willing to to go out and see stuff. So we're kind of changing the pattern of our work. But every day I'm coming up with a new idea or something new to um, explore and um work on like I'm desperate to do you watch um have you seen Pose the TV series I haven't what was that on so that's all I don't don't know why my year is full of amazing drag queens but Pose was an amazing series um 
I can't remember the name of the guy that, that created it now, but he did American Horror Story. And mm. it's about the drag world um, in America and the ballroom scene and all of that. So it's about working out whether we can bring that to life as a kind of stage version or a stage show or an immersive piece at some point. So there's always an idea that sort of pops into my head that I kind of want to explore. And that's the the creativity that's there. Yeah, it's brilliant. I think... Um... We'll wrap this up now, James, because honestly, the scale of the things that you do, like we we know a bit about producers. And one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you today was to learn more about producers and the range of the stuff that you have to be able to do and that you do in your job is is quite astounding. So uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to us and to share some of your knowledge. It's been hugely appreciated. So we'll we'll let you go off because about now is about probably about peak American time. So we, we can't delay you any longer <laughs> than that. So thank you so much for coming to talk to us today, James. It's hugely appreciated. Thank no you. No problem. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and learned something. We look forward to having you back in the room very, very soon.